Good morning. Very few characters in the Bible are all good or all bad. And, and, and often when we read about these characters in the Bible, the Bible doesn't even say this character did this and it was a good thing and this character did this and it was a bad thing, especially in the Old Testament narrative. A lot of times it just says what they did. And we are left to, to connect the dots. Well, we look at some of these characters in the Bible like David and Solomon and Abraham and Moses, and we think about all the great things they did, but they all had their flaws. They were all flawed heroes. But here's one thing that I like. I, I heard this from, from a, a, a pastor named Larry Osborne, and he said, God draws straight lines with crooked sticks. <laughs> Aren't you glad? All these flawed heroes, all these crooked sticks, God can draw straight lines from them. And that's what we're going to be looking at in this series. We already started last week with Joshua, and that's what we're looking at is how God draws straight lines with these crooked sticks, these characters. Now, today we're going to talk about Gideon, and Gideon's story takes place in the book of Judges. So I want to give you a little background on what's going on in the book of Judges. This takes place after Moses had, Moses had led the people out of Egypt and after um, they had wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and after Joshua had taken them then into the promised land and, and Joshua had died. And this is what we see at the beginning of the book of Judges. This is actually in the second chapter, but it says, after that whole generation, that is Joshua's generation, had been gathered to their ancestors, or they had died. Another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. And then Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord. See, during this time, there was no central government in, in Israel. There, there was no king. There was no standing army. They were a loose confederation of tribes. That's what they were. They were the 12 tribes of, of Israel. And God was supposed to be their king, but see, they consistently disobeyed God. And um, they would worship the gods of the Canaanites or, or, or the Amorites in whose land they, they, had, they had moved into. And then they would suffer because of it. They would suffer persecution, and they would suffer judgment because of their disobedience, and God would raise up these individuals, and they were called judges, not so much in the sense that we think of a judge sits in a courtroom, but these judges were deliverers by and large, and these judges would deliver the people from the persecution, and we see this cycle then in the book of Judges. They sin, there's judgment, God has mercy and has deliverance, and they sin, and they have judgment, and God has mercy and gives and brings deliverance. And it says in the book of Judges, um, in, again in that second chapter, it says that every time this happened, that the sin was even more corrupt than it was in the cycle before. This was a downward spire, spiral, a downward spiral that they were into. And that brings us to, us to our story of Gideon. Now, before Gideon came along, there had been a judge whose name was Deborah. Deborah was also a prophet. And while Deborah was judge, God delivered them again from their oppressors. And, and the Scripture says that they had peace for 40 years. Yeah, 
And we see in chapter 6 of Judges a phrase that turns out to be all too common in this book, the Israelites did evil in the sight of the Lord. I want to read the whole passage. Judges 6, chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. And because of the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts and caves and strongholds. And whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, the Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country, and they camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza, and they did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. Now, the Midianites were a semi-nomadic people along with the Amalekites, and, and as the Scriptures talk about these other people from the east, and, and I say semi-nomadic because they did have some towns, they had some villages, they even had some walled cities of their own, but by and large, they were like Bedouins. They were Bedouins. They, they, they traveled in their tents, and, and um, they lived east, east, of, of Israel, and they lived south of Israel, often to the Arabian Peninsula, the Sinai Peninsula, and, and even an area called Transjordan. Transjordan means across the Jordan, so they were east of the Jordan River. And that's where these, these, um, these um, Midianites and the Amalekites and these other groups lived. Now, the situation that it describes here in Judges is exceptionally devastating. In fact, I really think it's hard for us to get it. I think it's hard for us to understand how bad it was. They were not just invading Israel to steal stuff, right? They were stealing it to destroy the land. They would come after the, the crops were planted, and they'd camp all over it. they destroy the crops. It even said they destroyed the livestock and the sheep, the donkeys, and, and the cattle. And the reason they did it is very simple. We just read it. They invaded the land to ravage it. That was why they were doing it. And this had gone on for seven years. Think about that. Okay? This is January 1919. Or, oh, man. <laughs> wow. 2019. This is January 2019. Think back seven years ago. If you have kids, subtract seven from their age. Think how, when you think about it, January 2012, that was a long time ago, right? That's how long this had been going on. Total devastation every year. And, and of course, like I said, there was no government. There's no central government. There's no army to defend these people. They're just a bunch of tribes. And um, they started hiding themselves in the mountains, in caves, in clefts of the rock. Because understand at this point, there weren't a lot of walled cities yet in Israel, mainly just the ones that they had captured from the Canaanites when they, when they came into the land. So they cried out to the Lord, and when they did, it says God sent a prophet. doesn't give his name. We don't know who this man was, but God sent a prophet to him, and he said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of slavery. I rescued you from the hands of the Egyptians, and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you, gave you their land. I said to you, 
I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. So they cry out for mercy, and instead God just says, listen, this is your bed. You made it sleep in it, pretty much. And you think they got it? I don't know. I don't know. The Scripture doesn't really say, it doesn't talk about any repentance after that. But what we find instead is the story of Gideon. So there's this angel. And this angel came and sat down under a tree in a, in a village called Ophrah, and it belonged to Joash, the Ebi Ezrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. Now, this is the first time we see Gideon. And he's doing something that, in my opinion, is quite clever. I think this is so clever, right? We've already read that the Midianites have come in. There are, there's so many of them. There are swarms of them. We can't even count them. There's so many. And they're destroying everything, not just the crops, but the cattle and the, and, and the sheep. And they're destroying everything. And people have taken to hiding up in the mountains and in caves and cliffs. But, but, you know, even though people are starving and they're scared, Gideon hasn't given up. He hasn't given up. If the Midianites are going to destroy all the crops, Gideon is going to take the wheat to a place where they'd never think to look his father's wine press. Now, usually wheat was threshed in the wide open, often at the top of a hill, but it, it, was, it was on land that was either stone or really packed down dirt. And they'd thresh it and throw it up, and the wind would blow the chaff away. Well, what Gideon had done is gone to a wine press, which was hollowed out of rock. So he was down in a wine press trying to do this work. You know, the threshing floor where they would thresh, there'd be room for a lot of people. Wine press just had a room for just a few people. And Gideon was getting the job done, right? But it was really, really, really hard. Now, I've heard Gideon called a coward for this. And I'm going to do a little character rehabilitation, if that's okay. You see, I, I see Gideon not as a coward. I see him as both brave and clever. You know, there, there's absolutely no way he could have pumped his chest up, and I'm going to be brave, and gone out in the wide open and threshed the wheat. I mean, the Midianites, they were so numerous. They would have taken it. They would have destroyed it. He wouldn't have been able to stop them. I mean, it would have been foolishness, right? Not, not bravery. It would have been foolishness. But Gideon was so brave that he wasn't going to cower and hide while his family was starving. So he just figures out a way to get it done, Right? He just figures this out. And, and here's the thing. I don't read in here any place that there was anybody helping him either. Right? I mean, he was doing this on his own, apparently. And, he, and while he's doing that, this, this angel comes and sits down under a tree. And understand this angel wasn't an eight-foot shining person being with wings and that sort of thing. That's, that's not what this angel was. Usually in the Old Testament when we see angels, they just look like people. So he thinks he's doing something in secret and... This guy comes, sits down under the tree, and he says in the 12th verse, he says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now, at this point, this is actually the Lord speaking through this angel. There are some people that, that say whenever you see the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, it's the pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, and I, I don't know. That's a discussion for some other time and place. What we do know is this was the Lord speaking through this angel the Lord himself. 
And he talks about how Gideon's brave. He acknowledges that. I don't think he was being sarcastic. I don't think he was making fun of him. I don't. I think he was acknowledging it. But, but, but Gideon's got, he, he's having none of it. Gideon, he, listen, he's frustrated. He's had it. It's been seven years. Understand, it's been seven years. They're starving. They're scared. The land is devastated. He's, for crying out loud, trying to thresh grain down in a, a wine press. He's not in the mood. And this is what he says, pardon me, my Lord. Now, he's polite. If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord's abandoned us into the hands of Midian. Now, here's the thing. A prophet had just said, we just read this earlier. A prophet had just told him why this was going on, right? A prophet had already answered this question. And the angel just blows it off. angel just ignores him. Because it is a silly question. God had already told them what was going on. Instead, the angel says the Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have. Save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Wow. And Gideon has another rebuttal. He says the same words again. Pardon me, Lord. I love how polite he is. How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my family. And the Lord said, I will be with you. That's how you're going to do it. And you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. Now, Gideon's argument was logical. I mean, it was. His clan, the Abai Ezrites, within the tribe of Manasseh, was a, a weak clan. And even in his family, he had no standing. See, see, again, Israel at that time was this loose collection of tribes. There was no king. There was no government. There was no centralized authority. So any person who was going to rise up and do something had to have some kind of authority, some kind of status. And Gideon had none of that. He's just telling the truth. I'm a nobody. What, I'm just going to go out there and say, hey, guys, come on, let's fight. I mean, he understand who he was. He didn't know yet what God saw in him, though. He knew what he was, but he, he didn't know what he was in God's sight. So, the, uh, the angel tells him, you know, I'm going to go with you. And Gideon says, okay, okay, if I found favor in your eyes. Now, this is the first time he asked for a sign. He says, give me a sign that it really is you who's talking to me. Please go, please do not go away until I come back with an offering. And the, the angel says, okay. Again, this angel was not an eight-foot shining being with wings. This was an angel. This was looked like a man who was coming and telling him kind of audacious stuff, right? And Gideon wasn't, wasn't reckless. Uh, before he was going to run out and try to defeat this, this overwhelming Midianite presence, he, yeah, I want to make sure you're just not some guy that just wandered in here. I want to make sure you're really who you say you are. And the angel of the Lord was patient. It, Gideon goes and, and he prepares a young goat. And, and he makes some unleavened bread, right? I mean, there's no time for yeast to rise. He makes this, this bread and, and, and broth and he brings it out. The angel's still waiting for him. And the angel says, put it on that rock. And he puts it there. And the angel takes a staff, touches the rock, and fire comes out, consumes everything, and... The angel disappears. 
And now <laughs> Gideon knew this isn't some knucklehead just wandering around trying to get me in trouble. I have seen the angel of the Lord. I'm going to die. And at this point, God speaks, speaks directly to him, not through an angel. And then this is how God speaks to him for the rest of our story. He speaks directly to him and says, peace, peace, you're not going to die. It's okay. So, you know, Gideon, the, you know, he probably goes back to what he was doing and wraps it up for the day and goes home. And he's, I, I got to imagine he's, he's thinking about all this and, wow, I really was an angel of God. I, wow, and they, I'm supposed to, I, what, what am I going to do? And, and, I, and I bet he's trying to figure out, how am I going to do this? God said I'm going to. He said he's going to be with me. How am I going to? And, and while he's doing this, the Lord talks to him. And it turns out that Gideon's father actually had an altar to the god Baal. And next to that altar, he had an Asherah pole, which was a place of worship for the goddess Asherah. Gideon's own dad, and God spoke to him again that night. He says, I want you to go and tear down that altar. I want you to tear down that Asherah pole. I want you to build a proper altar, and I want you to sacrifice to me. Gideon says, okay, how am I going to do that? I mean, cer certainly he wasn't just going to prance in there in broad daylight, right? I mean, the, his parents, his family would stop him. The villagers would stop him. So he decides to do it at night. Again, I think this is very clever. I don't think he's being a coward. He's a pretty realistic guy. He knows I'm not going to walk in and do this. So, but he goes in at night with his servants. They tear down the altar. They tear, tear down the Asherah pole, and they sacrifice a bull, the same bull they used to pull down the altar. Bummer, huh? <laughs> For the bull. They, they sacrifice the bull unto the Lord on a proper altar. And the next morning, the townspeople come, and they see what's happened. And it wasn't a big secret. They figured it out that, that Gideon had done it, and, and they went to his dad, and they said, bring him out here. We're going to kill him. He's made the God, and the God is mad at us. And his dad stood up for him, and this is what his dad says. I love this. His dad says this. If Baal really is a God, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. Yeah. In fact, his dad said, if anyone touches my son, you're going to be dead before the morning comes. Ooh. So they changed his name. They gave him a new name. They, they gave him the new name Jeroboam, which means let Baal contend with him. Now, all of a sudden, this nobody, right, the least in his family and his clan, the Abiezrites, were the weakest in all the tribe of Manasseh. This nobody had a reputation. Huh? Not only that, he had a name. Hey, yeah, let, let Baal contend with him. He's somebody. He's somebody. So, back to the original thing that, that God had told them to do, right? The Midianites and the Amalekites and the other eastern people um, had, come, had come west from the east. They'd come across the Jordan River, through the Jordan River Valley, and they had camped in something called the Valley of Jezreel, the Jezreel Valley. Now, now the Jezreel Valley kind of stretches across 
the middle of Israel. It goes from the Jordan River Valley, really all the way to the Mediterranean Sea where, where Haifa is today. And it, it, it's been a place of a lot of battles, many battles. It's a fertile plain. Um, there were trade routes that went through there. Um, the city of Megiddo is at the, west, the western end of it. I have to remember that you guys are seeing the reverse of what I'm seeing. Megiddo is at the western end of it, and sometimes this is called the plain of Megiddo. It is also called Armageddon. That rings a bell, doesn't it? So that's where this is taking place. So all this huge army had come from the east, and they had come into the valley, and at the entrance of the valley there were two hills, on the north, Mora, and on the south, Mount Gilboa. And they came into the valley at that choke point, and they camped at the base of Mount Mora. And then the Scripture says this, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. Some translations say the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. And he sounded a trumpet, and he mustered an army out of his clan. And then he sent messengers out to the rest of the tribe of Manasseh and to three other tribes as well. And soldiers came. This nobody, right? Who am I? Who am I? Musters an army of 32,000 people. Sounds like a lot, doesn't it? Hmm. Not so much. Here's the deal. Remember what I said about the Midianites? Like you can't, couldn't even count them? Well, somebody counted them. <laughs> 135,000 of them. Yeah. And they, they, they settled on the land like a swarm of locusts. And he's got 32,000. Um, so certainly he wasn't going to defeat this army based on size of his army, right? He wasn't. And I'm sure Gideon knew that, but he, he had been commanded to, to go and attack and destroy this army. So he, he goes back to the Lord. And this is a very famous part of this story because we hear about laying fleeces before the Lord, and this is where that comes from. So Gideon has his army, but it's not quite enough. And in the 36th verse of chapter 6, Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor, and if there's dew only on the fleece and the ground is dry, I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you said. And that's what happened. He set the fleece out on the threshing floor. Next morning, fleece is wet, ground is dry. But then Gideon said, to God, do not be angry with me, but let me make just one more request. <laughs> Allow me one more test with the fleece, but this time make the fleece dry and make the ground all around it covered with dew. And that night, God did so. Only the fleece was dry and the ground was covered with dew. Now, that first test, not quite so miraculous. How many of you get up early and go outside? How many of you ever, I mean, you do that? Yeah. I, we've got a dog, okay? I get up early, take the dog outside. And, and this is what I find. When you go outside, the grass is wet with dew, and the sidewalk and the concrete and the patio, they're dry. Right? The hard surfaces really don't collect the dew. It evaporates. But it's the soft surfaces that are wet. So this first sign... Really, really wasn't enough of a um, K 
convincing, convincing sign for, for Gideon that, yeah, God's really telling me something. He's thinking to himself, oh, wait a second. That's, that's kind of what happens anyway. I know what I'll do. Let's do the opposite. And that was truly miraculous, wasn't it? It was truly miraculous. Because a threshing floor is going to be hard, just like, you know, when I take my dog out and the concrete on the patio is hard. It's kind of the same thing, you know. But when it was wet and the fleece was dry, Gideon knew, you know, this is really from God. So, it looked like everything was in place, right? God had convinced Gideon with these two signs. Gideon had this army of 32,000. Think of what's going on. There's this valley that, that, that comes from the east, from the Jordan, this valley and and these two mountains, right? And the army, all this 135,000 Midianites, they're camped out there. And Gideon is actually on the south side at, at Mount Gilboa. And they're looking at him and, and they're ready to go, right? God's going to give, give this, this army to us. And, and, and Gideon's good to go, but God put the brakes on now. Yeah, now it's time for God to say, whoop, 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 hang on a second. Because here, here's the thing. In reality... Gideon's army wasn't big enough to destroy the Midianites. I mean, they were over four times bigger, more numerous than he was. But God said, this is what's going to happen. If I deliver them into your hand, all of Israel will think you did it yourself. And you know what? God doesn't share his glory. Listen, God is the one that delivers and even though it would have been an act of God, he's saying the Israelites would take credit for it. So Gideon was in this peculiar spot, right? I mean, he didn't really have enough people to legitimately defeat Midian on his own, but he had enough that if God did deliver them, they'd think they had done it. So this is what God did. He told Gideon, tell the people in your army, and you'll see why I'm using air quotes, <laughs> If you're trembling with fear, go home. And 22,000 people left. Over two-thirds of the army was trembling with fear. Can you imagine what a mighty fighting force that would have been if he had taken them to battle against Midian? All I hear in my mind is, run away, run away, run away. So here's Gideon with 10,000, right? And, He's probably thinking, God, you made your point, but God said, no, too many. So this time God said, I'm going to thin them out for you. All you need to do is take them down to the water to drink, and I will do the rest. So he takes them down to the water to drink. They were at the spring of Harab, which is at the base of Mount Gilboa. And as people started drinking, he said, I only want you to keep the ones that scoop the water up with their hands and lap it like a dog. And when they did that, there were only 300 left. 300 left. And God said, yeah, that looks about right. Showtime. See, when Gideon had 32,000 and, you know, God had given him these signs with the fleeces, he was good to go. But now he's got 300. And... Think about what kind of doubt he had. You know, he, he was ready to do this, and now 300 people against 135,000. So God told him that night, that very night, go and attack them. But 
But if you need one more sign, man, God's so patient. If you need one more sign, take your servant and go down to the Midianite camp. So Gideon's like, oh, yes, yes, please, one more sign. And, and he takes his servant, and they go to the outpost of the camp. They go across the valley, and they're listening, and there are two Midianites talking, and, and they're talking about a dream that one of them had. And he said there was this barley loaf of bread came rolling down the hill, smashed into the camp and upended this tent and destroyed it. What do you think it means? And the guy goes, oh my goodness, that's Gideon. The Lord is going to deliver us into his hands. He's going to destroy us. Gideon overhears this. Now listen again. Gideon was a nobody, a nobody in his family. His family was a nobody in their clan. Their clan was nobody in the tribe of Manasseh. This nobody was so famous that the Midianites knew his name, and they were afraid of him. Man, you want to talk about confidence. It says that Gideon bowed down and worshiped God right there, and then he hurried back to the camp, and he said, boys, we're doing this. Everybody wake up. And they jumped up, and the battle was quite, quite clever. If you think threshing in a wine press was clever, if you think, you know, tearing down the altar at night where they don't see is clever, the plan that he had for defeating this army was really clever. 300 men, he gives them all a trumpet, he gives them a torch, torch made out of reeds, and, and, and he'd cover it with a a jar, and it would just smolder underneath that jar. He says, here we go. Splits them up into three groups of 100, and they get into position on three sides of the camp, and the mount, the hill of Morah, is on the fourth side. And he says, do what I do. And on his cue, they all blew their trumpets, they broke their jars, exposing the torches, and they shout, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Now, this happened, the Bible says, around midnight. Everybody is asleep. You are asleep, and you are surrounded by 300 torches and trumpets and people screaming. Now, I want you to consider this. Normally in an army, the number of trumpeters would be a very, 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 very small percentage of the total size of the army. These are the guys that would make the battle calls to call people to, to, to move and to do things, retreat, charge, whatever. And for a night battle, the, the number of people who would actually have a torch and would cover the perimeter to keep people from running away, again, would be a very, 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 very small percentage of the army. And I was talking to my wife, Glennis, about this. You know, I was thinking, if they just stood 50 feet across, right, 300 men would be like getting close to three miles of people. Can you think about that? Torch after torch after torch after torch going in each direction and trumpet sounding and they wake up in the middle of the night and think, oh my goodness, it's happening. Gideon has attacked, and the Lord's giving us into his hand. And they, they get up, and they see anybody moving, and they assume it's this army rushing in, and they start stabbing each other and fighting each other and killing each other and just going crazy until finally they just leave, and they start fleeing back to the east. We're getting out of, we're getting out of here. And the Israelites followed them and cut them down, utterly defeated them. So that's our story. 
And you can read that story in Judges chapters 6 and 7. If, if you want to actually read the Scripture instead of the Dan version, um, please feel free to do that this afternoon. So what I want to do this morning then is just take two lessons, just two lessons. There's a lot of things you can draw from the story of Gideon, and we'd be here all day. But I just want to draw two lessons from the story of Gideon. First of all, Gideon's story is fundamentally a story about deliverance from judgment. Fundamentally, that's what it's about. Now, last week, Pastor Mark shared a word. And Pastor Mark, that's a, that was a hard word. And I know it wasn't probably pleasant to share that word, but it's a hard word when he said, when you have a promise from God that you're not seeing fulfilled, look first for sin. See, there is a reason that God allowed the Midianites to oppress Israel. Israel was worshiping Baal and Asherah instead of God. And he sent the prophet to tell them that, and, and you know, Gideon either missed the message, I don't know, or, or he didn't want to hear it, because he still whined about it to the angel, Right? And before God could use Gideon to deliver Israel, Gideon had to tear down the altar to Baal and the Asherah pole. So again, and I know I'm paraphrasing, but again, I repeat what Pastor Mark said last week. If you're not seeing the promised blessing of God or, or, or if you're seeing some kind of oppression in some manner, first look to see if there's something you need to repent of. Is there another God, perhaps, that you're serving before the, instead of serving the true God? And, and certainly I don't mean like Baal or Asherah, but you know what I mean. Is there something you've placed in a higher position as a God in your life instead of God? Um, are you wondering why you're having financial problems, but you're robbing God in the tithes and offerings? Are you living maybe in some sin in your life and you know it's there? Okay, God's already challenged you about it. Extramarital sex, pornography, gossip, cheating on your taxes, stealing things from work. I, I, I don't know. Or maybe has God called you to do something and you've been ignoring his call? Now, I want to be very clear. I am not... I am not saying that if you are suffering from some kind of persecution, from some kind of trials, there's some kind of oppressor invader, I'm not saying that that means there's sin. Please don't let that be your takeaway, because I'm not. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is look there first. Look there first. Our God is a good Father. He's a perfect Father. He loves us so much. The picture that Jesus paints, for example, a father of the prodigal son, right? The prodigal son had taken his inheritance. His dad wasn't even dead. He went out and was extravagant. That's what prodigal means. It means extravagant. And he blew it all, and he found himself broke and starving, and he comes back. But the picture of the father who went out and looked every day, and then he sees his son finally, and he runs to him, and he kisses him, and he hugs him, and he puts a robe on him, and he throws a party. That is the image of our God. 
He's so loving and he's so good. And we see that repeated so many times throughout the book of Judges. You know, sin, persecution, redemption. Sin, persecution, redemption. God's love never fails, right? Listen, even in his judgment, God's love for us remains. Oh, man, God is so good. King David wrote this. His anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may stay for the night, but hey, rejoicing comes in the morning. And this is the second point. God is patient with our growing faith. He is. Four times. See, God wants our faith to grow, right? Four times he gave Gideon a sign, and, and, and no place in that story do we see God rebuking him, right? I mean, no place is God rebuking. I said, no, nope, that's enough. I'm cutting you off. As a loving father, God understands our weaknesses. In Mark chapter 9, we read, we read a story. There's, there, there's, there was a man who brought his son to Jesus. He was possessed of a demon, and, and this is what he says, if you can do anything... Take pity on us and help us. Now, do you notice the similarity? If you can do anything, the similarity with Gideon was, if you will save Israel like you promised, same kind of thing, right? And, and here's how that conversation went with Jesus in Mark chapter 9. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible to one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Some translations just say, I believe, help my unbelief. So simple. So simple. And you know what happened? Jesus healed his son. Jesus didn't say, come back when you got more faith. Jesus healed his son. He honored both the faith and he honored the honesty of this man. For you see, we have an advocate. Listen, we have an advocate in heaven a high priest. In Hebrews, it says that high priest is Jesus Christ. And this is what the writer said. We do, not have a pri- uh, we do not have a high priest who is unable to emphasize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. So, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Psalm 103, David wrote this, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. God's fully aware of our weaknesses and he's patient with us. Faith doesn't always mean an absence of fear. I want you to think about that. Faith may mean obedience in spite of fear. Yeah? Gideon naturally had fear, right? I mean, seven years of oppression and an absence of God's presence during that time will do that to a person. Being overwhelmingly outnumbered can do that to you. And in his patience, God helped Gideon overcome his doubts. Remember, in the book of James, we read when you ask, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed, and that person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. 
And God was willing to help Gideon work through that doubt. That's what all those signs did. And I really believe he will do the same for us. Okay? When your faith is weak, let God strengthen it. Understand, however, that the result of that must be that you're growing in your faith. See, I'm thinking that this man who said to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief, I'm thinking after he saw his son healed, he never ever again said, help my unbelief. I believe after that, he would say, I believe, end of story. And I believe, because I don't see it happen in the Bible, that after Gideon defeated the Midianites, he never had to go to God and say, if you're really going to do like you promised, give me a sign. No, he didn't have to. He grew in his faith. He grew through those things. And I'm telling you today, continue to grow in your faith as you see, as you see, and as you acknowledge, as you acknowledge God's faithfulness 